Hi, Kate. Hi, Daniel. Welcome back to Hot and Bothered. A podcast about climate politics for the 99%. So we're back from a... Well, we're back from a hiatus, but we're also in the middle of a special series, which you've been listening to assiduously. So you already know that we're here with a special guest, but in case you've forgotten who he is and how great he is, uh, Billy, why don't you say a word about yourself? Hi, folks. I'm Billy Fleming. I'm the Wilkes Family Director of the Ian McCarg Center here at Penn. And if you follow me on Twitter, you know I have a very perfect dog who is probably peeing in my office right now and a cat at home who is twice her size. Now, here's, here's the thing about your perfect dog, Billy, Pepper. We all love Pepper. And the other day I got a chance to meet Pepper. And Billy, you posted on Twitter four pictures of Pepper jumping all over my face. And I felt like the most special boy in the world. Today I log into Twitter and you have a picture of Mary Hegler with Pepper in her face, four different pictures. And I'm like, now now maybe Mary and I are special, but I don't know how many people are getting this. I don't know what to tell you. I mean, you know, we met all these people this weekend from like Naomi Klein to everyone else in this lineup. And my first response was like, oh, my gosh, it's amazing to meet you in real life. And they were like, cool, where's your dog? So, like, it's not that you're not special. It's just that I'm not. And everyone actually wants a photo with my dog and not with me. Pepper the Green, new dog. Yeah. It's weird that Kate hates dogs so much and is refusing to be photographed with Pepper. This is a blatant lie by <laughs> she, Daniel Atanakoen. She has, in fact, I been begging me to bring her in this studio. to have Pepper in this studio right now. And my request was cruelly denied. By Daniel. By Daniel. You know, I'm really tired. We've been organizing a conference all weekend, but I think requesting something that's impossible. <laughs> what is this? Like the early 2010s left, you know? <laughs> now our demands are real. <laughs> We've got to be ready to govern. Oh, we're taking a dog into the podcast studio. What an elegant transition, Daniel, uh, <laughs> into the content of this panel, uh, radicalizing pragmatism, the nuts and bolts of a Green New Deal, or as I like to refer to it, the lab meat and potatoes of the Green New Deal. Um, yeah, this is a really incredible, incredible lineup. Started off with Leah Stokes, who is a professor at University of California, Santa Barbara, and has done some really incredible research into um, the sort of enormous lobbying on the part of the utility industry uh, to block clean energy at the state level in particular, but is also just sort of a general purpose expert on all things climate and, you know, of late has been uh, really digging into candidates' climate proposals and talked a bit about that. And uh, then we had David Roberts, who you may know from Twitter as Dr. Vox, which only got said once through the weekend. Uh, maybe, you know, he's happy about that. But um, David talked about, you know, kind of the politics surrounding surrounding this and just sort of the barriers um, that, you know, are in place to things as, as radical as the Green New Deal uh, and what it'll take to, to overcome them. Then we had Corrine Taylor from uh, We Act, which is a decades running environmental justice organization based in Harlem and uh, has been really leading sort of thinking that, you know, we now describe as a Green New Deal, um, but has been, you know, taking place in environmental justice communities for for decades and decades. And and she spent some time talking about that. Um and yeah, it's hard to it's hard to overstate how kind of pioneering we act has been on this front, 
And then we had Rihanna Gunn-Wright uh, from New Consensus, which has been the group sort of leading uh, the policy charge behind the Green New Deal. Uh, Rihanna herself is, you know, the architect, I would say, of what this has looked like. And uh, she dives into kind of the process that they're using to come about this, kind of what they're, a little bit of what they're coming up against, um, and really getting into kind of what what this has to look like and how to how to get there. I mean, one, one thing I would just say up top, which just struck me as really fascinating and powerful, was um, Mary Hegler at the end of the first panel really talked about how climate change is a really emotional issue. And you can't just talk about it in a purely rational way because anybody's going to have an emotional response to this issue. It involves massive potential changes to politics, to the economy, et cetera, and the threat of you know extinction or massive murder of humans. Um, and so in- inevitably, this is a hugely emotional issue. And Mary spoke so, so powerfully and movingly to the need to acknowledge the emotional complexity. And then we had Rihanna making a similar argument. You know, this is a policy issue. And I thought it was really interesting that Rihanna, who was leading a policy process, um, chose to emphasize uh, as part of the discussion of how that policy process works. So this is a really emotional issue. And you have to engage with people knowing that and that a purely rationalistic kind of discourse really doesn't do justice to how folks are confronting this and is actually not going to be an effective way of building power around a big transformative change. Yeah, and I think we should just underline, like, these are the folks who are doing some of the most advanced thinking about this topic of maybe anyone in in the country. And have been Uh, for a really long time. Yeah. I think this is like... What's most interesting about this moment is that this kind of work that's been going on for a long time, mostly in the EJ community, mostly without the kind of spotlight and resources that are there now, is is being funneled with all of this energy back into or maybe for the first time into the sort of like public consciousness and is giving us and I think certainly them like a chance to be able to work on these things in a way that was just not possible, you know, two, three, four years ago. I mean, I think it's really important to to treat climate change as a visceral, emotional, raw thing because it is. We're like staring over the edge into the abyss, and that is a profoundly emotional position. It is not like a rationalized, technocratic um, thing to like stare down the face of like mass extinction, not just of people, but of like everything on this planet that we care about. And that's a thing that like I expect to hear in a design school where I sit at Penn where like we don't spend a lot of time thinking about how this stuff works from an engineering perspective. We think about what it means to like stare at, stare down the barrel of this kind of stuff. But hearing that from Rihanna, especially, who is like a policy expert too, but also like can connect it to – I think she put it as like the, the, the like soft tissue uh, of our soul that sort of connects us to the planet we're on through this like moment of climate crisis – was the was one of the most like energizing and rewarding and interesting parts of the entire day, I think. Yeah, I mean, if I could say, so I think the, unfortunately, the you know, listening, you won't see this, but one of Leah's sort of sets of slides is what she sets up for these slides that show sort of diagonal lines that slope upwards extremely steeply. And basically what Leah's slides are showing is that in order to decarbonize by 2030 or 2035 even, we have to build new clean energy at a rate unknown. I mean, we have to be building clean energy basically 10 times as quickly as we have been building it in the last 20 years. And I say this because I think in addition to exactly what you just laid out, Billy, it's not that just that we're staring down the abyss. We're also staring up Mm. this really steep uh, hill, this really steep climb. And I think, and I have, I think at times been guilty of this and at times not, 
of trying to say, listen, the only way to climb that really steep hill really quickly is like optimism, <laughs> you know, can do good American style. You know, I'm, I'm from Canada and I feel like one of the few things I've learned in the U.S. that I really appreciate is like a can do attitude, like optimism, like, yeah, that gets you out of bed in the morning. Um, and I do get up earlier in America than I, <laughs> I got up in Canada. <laughs> um, but anyway, so like, yeah, what is that attitude to kind of like flying up that really steep climb? And, you know, I think part of what Rihanna and Mary are telling us is, you know, not just the staring in front of the abyss, it's okay to feel emotionally ambivalent, but also facing that steep uphill climb, just being told, climb, 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 faster, 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 faster. I don't want to hear it if you're tired. I don't want to hear it if you're scared, um, that that's not going to work. Um, and so as we look at this challenge, we do have to be very sensitive to the complexity of that and open to telling stories and talking to each other um, in ways that kind of acknowledge and work with the full spectrum of emotions that are involved in this extreme level of ambition. I mean, Hercules is not known for his emotional complexity. We need Herculean efforts. We don't want to be like Hercules. You also don't really want that many analogies to Greek mythology from me. I just don't do it well. You just love Hercules. <laughs> we found that out while taping this. Yeah, I mean, I think it's also a nice intervention in the policy space, right? Which can feel so sort of like tightly rationalistic. And so, um, yeah, just kind of in, in the clouds a little bit and kind of dictating from 30,000 feet what something should look like. And and something that was really emphasized on this panel was, A, like you can't, for basic efficiency reasons, not to mention sort of moral and democratic reasons, create policy from 30,000 feet. We know, you know, that hasn't worked. There are all sorts of flaws with what that, um, how that ends up playing out for the folks who are, you know, on the other end of policy, who are in, in the Beltway or wherever. Um and I think it's nice, you know, to to sort of jar people out of that, which can be hard in certain settings. I know, you know, journalists, for instance, don't um, tend to, you know, talk about emotions so much uh, as a group. And I, I, you know, I'm not an academic, but my sense, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that many academics do not spend um, a lot of time in, you know, sort of policy conversations talking about the the weight of the of the crisis and and how to how to kind of you know just think about that as like a human. That's right. Well, you know, in social movement scholarship, which is a subfield of sociology, there is another subfield where they talk about emotions. And um, yeah, when you're like a few subfields down, <laughs> then there's uh, many subfields. <laughs> there are many subfields. Exactly. Um. So I think you're totally right, Kate. That that does not come up enough in, in our academic discussions. And then you know, I just want to say one more thing about this panel, which is that a lot of What's discussed in this panel, in particular from um, so-called Dr. Vox, is the massive, you know, institutional barriers to action. I just want to say, if you find yourself in that space, oh my God, these barriers to institutional action. Well, make sure that you explore the entirety of our special series because you'll hear another panel's very strong calls to and explanations for how to crush these barriers. Uh, they're there. And we heard a lot um, in this panel about how difficult it's going to be and you know how hard the right has fought to throw up these barriers. But yeah, we're going to crush them because we only have one choice, and that's to win. That's right. And I, I want to say one more thing. You know, it was really important to hear from Rihanna about this particular topic because like design is an instrument. It's it is the instrument through which like this big abstract bit of like federal policymaking actually meets the ground where people live and how they live. And that is, you know, there are engineering concerns there are technocratic concerns to that but it is a fundamentally emotional response both to what it means to like build new housing in a neighborhood to put a park in or not to put a park in to build you know 
transit stops and connectivity to neighborhoods are not to do that. Th those provoke profoundly emotional responses. And for us to pretend like this is a thing that can be sort of optimized away through by transportation engineers and by other people who do that kind of work for a living uh, would be foolish. And again, I don't think we set the panel up this way intentionally. But when you put people like that together on this panel, great things happen. And Rihanna really took care of that for us. So to introduce this panel is the state representative for South Philadelphia, where Billy and I both live, um, Elizabeth Fiedler. She is a really great state representative, like a certain Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, Elizabeth Fiedler got into office by primarying a relatively useless Democrat. <laughs> um, Fiedler jumped in the race. She was working as a reporter uh, at the NPR station in Philly, WHYY. And I love this story because I feel like in the U.S., so many people's most comfortable relationship to politics is criticizing it sort of as if they were behind a window, you know, criticizing what's going on down below without the idea that they could get involved and what symbolizes that more than our media. But Fiedler was like, yeah, I can see what's going on and it's not what I would like it to be. I'm going to actually do something about it. So she's a proud mother of two. She ran this primary race a couple years ago right after having her second child. She rides public transit. She advocates for a really intersectional approach to environmental justice, racial justice, economic justice. She's just absolutely fantastic. So we were thrilled to have her introduce this panel. And she will be fighting uh, in Pennsylvania for the kinds of policies we're talking about nationally. Green New Deal, intersectional, climate justice, economic transformation. The list goes on and it just keeps getting better and better. But we'll turn it over now to Rep. Elizabeth Fiedler. AOC is not here. I wish she was, but I'm very glad to be with you. She did once send me an Instagram message, and uh, I, was, I was pretty overwhelmed by that. So, um, But while we see what's happening in D.C., certainly what's happening in the state houses across the country is incredibly important. I am a state representative in the Pennsylvania State House, and I'm glad to be here with all of you. To imagine, to plan, and to fight for the kind of world that we envision and that we deserve, where everyone has clean water, air, housing, quality health care and education, care when they are sick and in old age. It's a lot, right, that we're fighting for, a lot that we're working toward, and some would even call it radical. But given the crisis that we face now, and the looming crisis that is getting larger on our horizon, we know that, in fact, it's not radical. The change that we seek and the world we're working toward is incredibly pragmatic. And that's what this panel is about today. I'm incredibly honored to introduce this panel full of absolutely amazing people. As I said, I serve in the Pennsylvania State House, and this panel for me is of particular interest because it is about pragmatism. It's about nuts and bolts. It answers the question of how. How do we accomplish all of these things, the change we seek, and the transition that we know we need? Joining us today is Leah Stokes, an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science and affiliated with the Bryn School of Environmental Science and Management and the Environmental Studies Department at the University of California, Santa Barbara. 
She works on energy, climate, and environmental politics. Within American politics, her work focuses on representation and public opinion, voting behavior, public policy, particularly at the state level. And I had the honor of sitting next to her at dinner last night and really enjoyed our conversation. Next is Rihanna Gunwright, whose reputation precedes her in addition to many members of our panel. Uh, I am a fan of her Twitter account and the way that she brings these big ideas down into sizable, digestible bites. She is the policy director for New Consensus, an organization that is developing and promoting the Green New Deal, among many other projects. Thank you for being with us. Corrine <laughs> Taylor is a social justice advocate who has worked tirelessly in the areas of environmental justice, civil rights, and voter protection. Before returning to WEAC for environmental justice, she was the policy director for Green For All. Thank you for being with us as well. And our last but not least panelist is David Roberts, an energy writer at Vox. <laughs> where he covers climate change, clean energy, and politics. And prior to being at Vox, Roberts was an energy and climate writer at Grist. Thank you for being with us today. And our moderators to help us through the um, path of the nuts and bolts and figuring out the questions and answers to how do we accomplish all of this work. Two amazing moderators, Allison Lassiter, who examines opportunities to use landscape infrastructure and technology to build resilience and increase adaptive capacity in cities. Thank you for being with us today. And finally, Ellen Nysis, the executive director of Penn Praxis. She teaches landscape design at the University of Pennsylvania and works on large scale and large scope design and policy problems. Let's give a warm welcome to all of our panelists and moderators. Thank you. First, you'll hear from Leah Stokes. Okay. Um, Good afternoon, everyone. Um, I feel an immense privilege uh, to be here today uh, talking about something that is near and dear to all of our hearts, which is really the fate of uh, all living beings on this planet. Um, not to put too heavy a point on it. Um, so what I'm going to tell you about today is the case for a Green New Deal. So the place where the Green New Deal lives right now is very much in the Democratic primary. Um, you may have noticed, I've certainly noticed, I've started a bizarre side gig of uh, analyzing all the candidates' plans. And um, yes, I need to go back to my day job, I think. Um, so this is the 2050 plan for electricity. That is Joe Biden's plan for how we're going to decarbonize our electricity system. And what we've done here, um, what I've done here is zoomed in on the past two decades. And you can think of the black line as the benchmark for where we need to be at any given time. So if we take a straight line between the year 2000 and run it out to 2050, where we have to have 100% clean electricity, that means we have to grow by two percentage points every single year. And if we just zoom in on the history, you can see that we've been beating that line for the past um, you know, 18 years, up to 2018. But if you zoom into the future, what you'll see is that that line gets a lot harder to meet 
And this is, of course, the Biden plan, which is not the most ambitious. Um, and that's because we've really been living on borrowed time in terms of uh, our nuclear fleet, as well as the hydropower resources that Nick mentioned this morning. We don't really have more of those to develop in the United States. So what we need to be doing is dramatically ramping up the green area, the renewables, and it's at a pace and scale that's really um, unprecedented. Renewables have been growing at 0.6 percentage points annually. That's it for the past decade. And so if we're talking about two percentage points, we are way off where we need to be being, even for the Biden plan. Okay, so let's now look at the 2035 plan, which is the Inslee or Warren plan as she adopted Inslee's plan after he exited the race. And that um, basically says we're going to keep nuclear online, we're going to use our existing hydro, and we're going to add renewables, and we're going to do it pretty darn quickly out to 2035. So what you can see here is that the growth rate uh, in renewables is really quite dramatic compared to historical levels. And then this is the Sanders plan, which is the 2030 100% renewable plan for electricity. And what I've done here is just deleted the nuclear fleet, because um, <laughs> that's the plan. And, um, you can see it gets a lot harder. So journalists, they love to call me up and say, Leah, I mean, all of these candidates, they just, they agree, like they're all, they're all on the same page. And I'm like, you have no idea what one sentence in a plan means. It means something very different to the world when you adopt one version of a plan versus another. And I think that those facts are lost on the vast majority of people, that every year matters, every resource matters. The words on paper, if they were implemented in the world, would be dramatically different. But of course, as Jesse Jenkins, who's in the room, would love to tell me, and it's true, that's not the whole story. Because the Warren and Sanders plans are not just about decarbonizing our electricity system, they're also about decarbonizing our transportation system, which is currently the largest source of emissions, just by like a little bit compared to the power sector right now. Um, so it's actually harder than that. Um, what I've done here is just stretch the line out to 200%, because basically what we have to do is not rebuild our entire grid that we took 120 years to build once over the next 15 years or 10 years, we need to do it twice. And that's because if you want to put the transportation sector onto the grid, you have to build more of the grid because it turns out it takes energy to drive cars around. So um, these are really monumental uh, plans. They are obviously essential if we want to uh, preserve life. And I like to say that the US electricity system decarbonizing is the first linchpin globally for the pathway to a low carbon future for the entire planet. Uh, many people think this is the easy thing to do. It's not. Decarbonizing the electricity system is not the easy thing to do, but it's the first thing we have to do. And uh, if we can get this done right in the United States, we have a shot at doing it around the world. And um, to me, the difference between these two plans is sort of like saying, I'd like to walk out my front door tomorrow and go hiking in the Sierras for the next four weeks. That would be really hard. And then the other one is saying, I'd like to walk out my front door tomorrow and go scale Mount Everest tomorrow. So they're both really difficult, but they are different scales and scopes in terms of where we're going and how fast. Now, I have a slide which says, <laughs> A carbon tax alone will not do this. I have just spent my summer writing a long essay for the Boston Review, uh, which will argue this. Um, 
I will be banned from all conferences with economists in the future, so pray for me. Um, I'm not against carbon prices, but if that's the scale and scope and what we're talking about, a carbon tax will not do that. You cannot get it high enough, first of all, from a political economy perspective. The um, World Bank says you need carbon prices between $40 to $80 a ton to be consistent with Paris. Most carbon taxes around the world are like $15 a ton. So, and anyway, let's say we were to get it to 200. Carbon prices are not very good at forcing new technology into the market. So that brings us to the beautiful word, words of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, which is that we must have solutions at the scale of the crisis. It is not enough to put a Band-Aid on an open artery. You will still bleed out, you know? You have to actually solve the problem. So that is what the Green New Deal is about. So what is the Green New Deal about? And of course we have the resolution, we have work of groups like Data for Progress and New Consensus fleshing out these ideas. Um, and what it is in practice is a whole bunch of things that actually would bring um, electricity into the market that's clean. And this is also fleshed out in Sanders' plan and Warren and Inslee and, and Joe Biden's as well. So first of all, we need a national clean electricity standard. The closest we've ever come to that is during the Waxman-Markey bill. There was actually a clean electricity standard there that would have made a difference had it been implemented and passed. Um, we did not do that, obviously, 10 years ago. Um, we also need to have clean vehicle standards. And this is the kind of stuff that the Inslee plan talks about in detail. Um, now, what you should be thinking when you look at those terrifying lines that go up at very dramatic angles is energy efficiency. Because for every kilowatt hour that we do not need, the line gets less steep. So if we can make our homes more energy efficient, if we cannot use energy in the first place, then we don't need to decarbonize it, right? So that's a really important lever. Now, under the Recovery Act, there was a program called the 1603 program, which deployed renewables pretty darn quickly. And right now, what we have is called the Investment Tax Credit and the Production Tax Credit. And I don't know if there's nerds in the room who realize, but those things are going away. They are sunsetting right now. So our main federal supports for renewables are slated to expire, and of course, um, the vehicle tax incentives, too, for certain manufacturers who have gone above their limits are also slated to expire. So the golden era of support for these things is coming to an end, and it was hardly a golden era to begin with. Um, the other thing we need is research and development funds. Um, perhaps not for everything, but for at least a few things. One is long-term storage. If we want to have very high penetrations of renewables, we have to have a way to deal with it when the sun is not shining and the wind is not blowing. And I think Nick this morning did a great job talking about using, for example, pumped hydro at reclaimed mining sites. That was an interesting idea. And also um, R&D, uh, the Sanders plan, for example, talks about sort of a sunshot style initiative, but for batteries. And something we do not talk enough about in our community, but that I feel very strongly about, is negative emissions technologies. We have 415 parts per million in the atmosphere this year of carbon. We need to get that carbon out of the air, okay? It came from an underground reservoir of fossil fuels. It needs to go back underground. That is not a justification to continue to burn fossil fuels, but it is a solution to take the carbon out of the air and the oceans, which is something that I feel is very important to do. Um, and oh, another thing we don't talk very much about is what the hell are we going to do with all the carbon-intensive infrastructure we've built? We're going to have to pay people off. We're going to put them in jail. I don't know what we're doing, but um, my point is... We, I wasn't saying we're putting them in jail. I'm just saying 
We gotta do something, right? Okay, so guess what guys, that, that very intense talk I just gave you was 57% of the problem, shit. <laughs> it was pretty hard and it was only half of the problem. So then we come to these other sectors that we don't spend as much time talking about and they're the other half. So just quickly I'll go through the other half of the problem. Um, buildings. The uh, Inslee and now Warren plan talks about retrofitting 4% of every building in America every year for 25 years. Wow, that's an interesting number. Um, also doing new builds uh, up to standards. We of course have to decarbonize industry, that means we have to get steel off of coal, we have to think about how cement could become, for example, a negative emissions um, technology rather than a source of carbon as it is today. We have to think about aluminum and plastics. In the agricultural industry, fertilizer, guess what it's made out of, guys? Fossil fuels. So got to think about that. And the thing that the right always loves to go on about, the, the cows. Um, but turns out you could maybe feed them seaweed and they reduce their methane emissions. So, and there's also like lab meat. So there are other solutions other than taking away your burgers, hypothetically. We need to fail, phase out the oil and gas industry, really important. Um, and that's not going to be easy, but that is a really important fight. So, oh my God, it's already so hard. Why the hell would we do social policy and economic policy on top of that? That was a question this morning on the panel and everybody didn't answer it. Well, <laughs> no, I didn't mean that as a, anyway. Um, so, I will answer it now. Um, well, the, the concept of the Green New Deal is that we have a twin crisis of the climate crisis and economic um, inequality in this country and that these two crises are fundamentally linked. That is the idea. And if you think about the way carbon taxes have been greeted by populations in France or Australia or we'll see what happens in Canada with the election in a few weeks, um, you know, it's been really hard for people who are struggling to pay their bills because they're not paid living wages to think about paying even more at the pump for their daily lives, basically. And so we have to think about bringing people along across racial lines, gender lines, class lines. And of course, if we're going to do these crazy things I'm talking about, that will involve massive economic disruption. That's just a fact. And so we have to think about how we're going to bring people along with a just transition, with health care, et cetera. Um, and I have a paper with uh, Matt Mildenberger and Parrish Burquist, which we are trying to get published right now, which shows empirically, using a conjoint experiment, that it is more popular as well to link, for example, a $15 minimum wage, health insurance, affordable housing with whatever your favorite uh, climate policy is. So it's real, it does work. Um, so why jobs? Well, I have another paper I've already published which shows that people really like jobs. I mean, wow, that was a great finding. Um, <laughs> but I got it published in a good journal. Um, so it's gonna create a lot of jobs, guys. And I think that some of the messaging, like Elizabeth Warren has been pretty great about this, talking about the economic opportunity. And I think that creating a sense of hope and guys, we're gonna have to do a lot of stuff that that, that will have work for people. Um, and of course it's more popular. So I will leave you with this quote, um, which really puts the context in a broader historical position, which is, this is Thomas Edison speaking a century ago, and he says, why we have just begun to commence to get ready to find out about electricity. This scheme of combustion to get power makes me sick to think about it. It is so wasteful. 
You see, we should use natural forces and thus get all of our power. Sunshine is a form of energy and the winds and the tides are manifestations of energy. Do we use them? Oh no. We burn up wood and coal as renters burn up the front fence for fuel. We live like squatters, not as if we owned the property. So we are in a century-long fight. We have already wasted four decades. That is why the slope is so terrifying in terms of what we have to do so quickly. The fossil fuel denial campaign, which is alive and well, has been very effective at delaying, and we cannot delay anymore. We have to end the fossil fuel era. There's no more time to waste. Um, I will leave you with this, which is I have a book coming out in March that is super wonky if you're interested in this wonky stuff. And um, you can always follow my ramblings on Twitter as well. So thank you very much, and I hope you will be in this fight with the rest of us. Now you'll hear from David Roberts. Well, I drew the short straw <laughs> going after Leah. <laughs> I have uh, neither slides. Uh, nor published articles, nor books to refer you to. Um, uh, actually, just before starting, I just want to say, I don't want to dwell on this, but I just want to say how delighted I am to be the only pale male face on this stage. Um, yes, thank you uh, to the organizers. <clears throat> so, Leah just told you, I think, how hard this is going to be in terms of policy, just the sort of sheer tonnage of policy uh, that is needed and the range and scope of policy that is needed. Uh, I'm going to say a few words about how hard this is politically, <laughs> just to add to, uh, just to, add to your, your troubles. So I think, um, you know, we're in a, a democratic primary and there's a lot of enthusiasm about this, there's a lot of talk about this, there's a lot of polling that shows that Democratic primary voters are super into green policy, they're super into the Green New Deal, and there's this sort of like heady, we're in a very heady moment where it's very fun to sort of talk about our visions for uh, uh, what could happen and our, you know, our sort of aspirations and like what kind of world we want, and I love all that stuff. I, I truly love that stuff. I love that video that AOC made, the animated video, like showing the future world. Like this is uh, long overdue, I think, for the green movement to have a better and a more concrete and a more rich and full vision of what they want to go for. But I think also uh, uh, there's a danger of sort of uh, getting out over our skis and maybe overestimating the extent to which uh, this fever has caught on beyond uh, our, our group. <laughs> so, um, I mean, one, one thing I think it's important to emphasize is that the right hated the New Deal. <laughs> they hated it a lot, and they fought it, and they were overwhelmed, and it was passed uh, mostly over their reservations. And you can view the latter half of the 20th century as the right's long, coordinated, very well-funded effort to ensure that nothing like that ever happens again. That's, uh, that's absolutely always on their mind. The New Deal is everything they hate and fear and don't want, and they have been um, really smart about attacking exactly the foundations on which the, 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 green, the New Deal was built. So uh, take, for instance, unions. What was it, 40-something percent unionization uh, at the beginning of the Green Deal. The, the right has very 
deliberately degraded and destroyed unions to now to the point that unions are, are, are barely um, you know, a shadow of what they, they were. Um, similarly, back then we had uh, whatever 20% unemployment or whatever. Now we've got this situation where there's not nearly as high unemployment. Instead, everybody just got kind of a half a loaf crap job, not enough to panic, right? Not enough to cause this sense of like something needs to happen, just dragged out low-level anxiety and precarity, <laughs> which is, which is, which is diff more difficult to organize than something as kind of clear-cut as, as unemployment. And, and, that, and that precarity was designed. It's, it's on purpose. It's very difficult to get people who are anxious about keeping the scraps they have um, uh, to risk, right, going for something bigger or even to think that something bigger is possible. Um, similarly, uh, the right has recognized that um, it's not going to have the numbers to stop this kind of thing through, through uh, democratic <laughs> means. Um, eventually, uh, the number of workers in precarity and the sort of the, the, the um, you know, the physical circumstances of climate change are going to put a majority behind action. A majority is now behind action, so they have very deliberately been manipulating the structures of, of U.S. government to make it harder and harder to do anything. So the, the you know, the, the obvious example, the one that's come up over and over again in the Democratic primary, uh, which I like to take personal credit for since I've been banging this drum since the early 2000s is the filibuster. So the filibuster, you know, historically has almost always been used for reactionary purposes, but, but Mitch McConnell just went ahead and made it routine, right? So now the, now <clears throat> the Senate has a default 60-vote majority requirement, which is impossible, <laughs> to overcome. There's just no, I mean, the last major social reform passed was Obamacare, and that passed the Senate with 60 Democratic votes and zero Republican votes. And months later, 60 became 59, and lo, nothing passed for the next six years of the Obama administration. He was restricted to what he could do on his own. And it's not just that. It's gerrymandering. It's, uh, it's voter, you know, it's manipulating uh, voter system, voter disenfranchisement. It's more and more open these days. I don't know if you've been watching the sort of farcical uh, uh, proceedings in North Carolina, but the, <laughs> but the, the, the Republican Party there keeps losing elections and keeps just sort of openly uh, uh, manipulating, uh, excluding the governor from power, taking secret votes. The, uh, last week, they tricked Democrats into leaving the Senate to go to a 9-11 memorial, swearing that they wouldn't take any votes while the Democrats were gone, and then promptly voted to strip the governor of more power the minute the, the Democrats were at a 9-11 memorial. Uh, and then, like, just... Just yesterday on Twitter, there's some Texas Republican legislator saying, I'm so sick of Austin doing liberal things. It's high time to strip Austin of its, strip Austin's of its ability to elect its own leaders. It's, it's high time for the Texas state legislature to appoint people to run Austin, which is like, 
I feel like it wouldn't have been that long ago when proposing to strip a million people of their right of democratic representation would have been kind of a big deal, but it's, uh, it's um, the Republican turn against democracy, I think, is becoming more and more open, and, and it's, uh, you know, it's sort of morally repugnant as it may be, it's been very, very effective, and the sort of channels for action have become uh, narrower and narrower, and this is all, as I said, by design. So the point is, um, the likelihood, well, let's just spin out a, a, a scenario, right? The likelihood of big legislation. Let's, let's look at the road ahead. Democrats have to win the House, pretty good chance of that. They got to win the Senate, which I think experts now have at under 50-50 under chances. Winning the Senate is a long shot. Got to win the presidency, which I think now is around 50-50 chances, although one doesn't want to prognosticate these things when one is on record saying that Donald Trump will never be president. Uh, <laughs> And then if, we ha then if you've got the presidency in both houses of Congress, uh, then you've got to persuade um, a lot of institutionalist and small c conservative and very frightened uh, Senate Democrats to vote to get rid of the filibuster, which uh, um, a lot of them are being very quiet about, <laughs> despite it coming up frequently. And then, Right, if this whole series of long shots, right, if you roll sixes on all these things, get all, both houses of Congress, get the presidency, get rid of the filibuster, then you are in a position where you can pass whatever Joe Manchin will sign. He is, he is going to be the gatekeeper, the 51st vote or 50th vote. Um, and if you think Joe Manchin's going to sign a bill that bans fracking uh, when, he, when his entire... <laughs> Shh, shut up. Shut up. Oh, sorry. That was in such bad form. Uh, right, so Joe Manchin's not going to sign anything. He's not going to... So what will Joe Manchin do? What can Joe Manchin be made to do, right? So at that point, then we're gonna find out what is, how much power does this movement have? How much power does this movement and this coalition have? That's when we'll find out, can they pry uh, conservative Democratic senators out of their foxholes into a little bit of ambition? And that will be uh, extremely difficult, right? So. Uh, all of this is not to be a wet blanket, except maybe a little. It's just to say that um, as much as I love the visions and as much as I love the, the theorizing and, and the history, I feel like um, this movement needs, in addition to those things, uh, it badly needs a body of political operators and kneecappers and bone breakers and people know who know where the bodies are buried and people who know who's vulnerable on what and what's possible and what's not, what's achievable and what's not, who can be leveraged, who can be moved and who can't. These are the, the, the skills of actually making political change happen are unique skills and they're rare and they're to be prized and I feel like they don't always necessarily get, uh, get, get the celebration 
they should or the respect they should and often, uh, often get dismissed as sort of like grubby somehow or, or compromised somehow. And I really think we need to avoid that. I think um, above all, this movement needs a ruthless and unromantic view on power. Power is what matters. Power is what matters. Um, you know, rhetoric and stories can be a form of power, but even getting your rhetoric and stories and narratives out in front of people requires power and money. It's not that the right-wing narratives are that clever. They're not that smart. They're just repeated endlessly, endlessly, endlessly through multiple channels of media and it just has been pounded into the heads, and I think we, we do ourselves a disservice if we underestimate the extent to which those narratives have taken hold, not even just among Republicans, but among Democrats, often subconsciously. And so and I think we, you know, all this excitement about the Green New Deal, I think we, we are, um, need to remember that a lot of these quiet <laughs> Democrats in Congress still have a lot of these narratives in their head about, about the deficit, about, about basically anything left equating to uh, electoral risk, right? I mean, that's sort of the basic narrative that's been pounded into the heads of lawmakers as you go to the left to your peril, right? And I don't think it's right, but it's, but it's uh, uh, been uh, uh, repeated often enough that they, that they have internalized it. You know, all these, all these polls, there's social science showing that not just among Republicans, but across the board, U.S. politicians overestimate the conservatism of their constituents almost uniformly because the voices with power that lawmakers hear around them all the time are, are conservative voices. And so um, it's a lot about just being loud and getting new voices in that conversation. And I just you know, want to pause there to say, uh, just to give a, a, a yet another shout out to the Sunrise Movement, um, which, has, which has proven incredibly adept and smart about building and using power in a way that the establishment green groups have completely forgotten how to do. Um, the establishment green groups have gotten comfortable, they've gotten cautious, they've gotten rich, and they just don't want to take chances anymore. They don't, they don't, they don't recognize the historical moment and they're being, they're being dragged along by the Sunrise Movement, which has taken incredibly small numbers and incredibly small resources and leveraged it into an enormous amount of, of, of change. So, so yes, power, power, power. Um, another thing, uh, uh, just two more things and I'll wrap up. One is uh, federal action is just going to be super, super, super difficult, but there are states where things are happening. There are states where things are moving, uh, i.e. the states where Democrats are in, <laughs> are in control. And there's really um, ambitious and exciting green policy being passed at the state level, and that ambition can be increased. Those people can be pushed to sort of test run some of these bigger uh, uh, Green New Deal policies, like a green bank or or a, a, you know, a conservation corps, things like this, can be road tested at the state level. So a lot of this can be demonstrated and shown at the state level. And if there's a road to federal policy, it's probably going to be enough states moving in the same direction that it just sort of in, ends up carrying the nation along, much like it was with fuel economy standards. It was California 
chose its own, more and more states joined California, and then finally the automaker said, finally we give, we don't want to make two sets of cars, let's do new federal standards. That's, gonna, that's the most likely road to federal policy. So uh, attention to the state level, attention to the subnational level, attention to cities, to utilities, to public utility commissions. Uh, public utility commissions are, are, are the most boring entities on the planet, but they have their hands on an enormous amount of carbon, more than like half the carbon that's uh, floating around in the US. They have, a, and, and they're, they're enormously subject to pressure because rarely do people show up to those things. So, so uh, attention to the uh, subnational level. And then uh, the final thing I wanna emphasize, um, which, is, which is also kind of boring but important, is I think if you look at what's going on in California, you can both see the promise of, of democratic control and ambitious green policy, and you also see some of the dangers in that the implementation of these bills and programs that are passed is everything. It's everything, whether they're effective or not, whether they're popular or not, whether they end up working or not, and whether they spread to other states or not is all about implementation. And, and, the, and, and if you talk to people inside that world, inside the California legislature, what they say is most Greens show up, rally, pass the bills, high-five each other, and then, and then vanish. And then no one's scrutinizing um, CARB and all these other entities who are, who are implementing these policies. So the number one thing that can be done to make green policy more successful and more popular is make green policy work the way it's supposed to. And that is all about the boring details of implementing these things and ensuring that um, you know, the rules are followed, that there's enforcement, that, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, that, and I'll just, um, that's the last thing I'll say. I just want to emphasize that this is an amazing moment. I've been writing about this stuff now for 15 years. I started writing about it in 2003. And it was a bleak, <laughs> it was a bleak <clears throat> landscape back then. <clears throat> I can, if you, if you can believe it, regularly would come into work and think, what can I write about today? Like nothing, <laughs> there's nothing happening anymore. The climate got 0. .0001 degrees hotter, but nobody's doing anything, nobody's saying anything, and now, of course, I can't keep up. So it's, am it's, it's amazing how fast um, the dialogue has moved, how fast society has moved, how fast the Democratic Party has moved on all this, but, but the, the, the enormous resistance to change that is built into the U.S. political system at every level and has only been reinforced over the last 50 years remains waiting <laughs> at the end of all that. So uh, just, um, you know, just an unromantic, I think, uh, uh, a devotion to learning how that stuff works and pulling all those levers making um, um, common cause with groups that might not share the full enthusiasm for the full meal deal, for the making opportunistic coalitions with people who might disagree with you about other things. All the stuff of politics is going to be where all this rubber hits the road, and I just, I just want that stuff to get the same sort of uh, respect and attention that um, you know, the vision gets. That's all. Thanks. Next up is Corrine Taylor Esquire. How's everybody doing? Yeah. Hanging in there. All right. Katrina, 
Irma, Maria, Harvey, Sandy, Dorian. I just wanted to start, you know, from a place of identifying the real struggle and the people. Um, a lot of the environmental justice movement is a constant struggle between not only advocating for people, public health, and then using research and science to back up all the things that we were saying so that you guys will actually listen to us. Um, but I wanted to start from a personal place. A friend of mine is from the Bahamas. Her family is from Freeport, Bahama, Bahamas, and she is incredibly distraught right now. Uh, her grandmother, her aunts, her uncles were incredibly just devastated by um, Hurricane Dorian. And they don't know what they're going to do. But what we know continuously is this is going to happen again. And these people are hardworking people. These people have nothing now. They've even reached out to us here in this country and they've been deemed gang members and just bad people. But again, we know this is going to happen again. Like right now, the people of Bahamas have another tropical storm coming right now, right? So how do we advocate for communities of color? How do we protect our most vulnerable? How do we do that in a manner that is respectful of our history and respects the fact that there are so many examples of systemic racism and economic injustices that have happened to communities of color, whether they are indigenous, whether they are here in this area, in, in Alaska, wherever. How do we address all of those things? So good afternoon. It's now any, it's not as depressing. I'll, I'll try to bring it back up. My name's Kareen Taylor. Hi. I'm director of federal legislative affairs for WE Act for Environmental Justice. WE Act was founded 31 years ago in Harlem, New York. And WE Act has been working diligently to ensure that people of color and low-income low residents of Harlem can be uh, meaningfully engaged around the process of creating sound and fair environmental health practices and policies. We empower Harlem to create healthy communities. And the beauty of our work is that there are so many other environmental justice organizations that are doing that and have been doing that for decades. Now, I appreciate the opportunity to not only, you know, talk about the WEAC story, but to kind of lift up our perspective on the Green New Deal. And, you know, while I cannot speak for the entire environmental justice movement, um, I hope to kind of reflect just some of the concerns, some of the opportunities, and just some of the examples that we think should be uh, at the foundation of the work that if we say we really want to address climate change, if we really want climate justice, well, there can be no climate justice without environmental justice. That's where you should clap. Okay. <laughs> so we're all here today because we understand how dire climate change is. And I hope we can all agree that bold revolutionary action must happen now. Now the question is, 
really focused on the who, the what, the where, and the when, and how. And that's the great concern. So when we say that we're designing a Green New Deal, my immediate response is, for who? I and many in the environmental justice community understand and are experiencing climate change in many ways that make it necessary for us to demand a seat at the table. But as we look at the fact that what we're celebrating the 400th year of uh, slaves here in America from Africa, in many cases, people of color have built the table and the chairs. Extreme weather, like hurricanes, extreme heat, flooding, requires that people of color, whether from Harlem, Chester, Pennsylvania, New Orleans, the Gulf South, Puerto Rico, the Bahamas, we must lead the discussion, define the solutions, and receive the equitable distribution of resources. Speaking of resources, just yesterday I was in DC, that's where I live and where I work, and there's this really cool panel um, uh, during Congressional Black Caucus Week with all of these great environmental justice leaders that I look up to, including Peggy Shepard, my boss, Nikki Sheets from New Jersey, Dr. Sokobi Wilson, uh, Dr. Bob Bullard, who many of you know, uh, Michelle Roberts. And Dr. Bullard, you know, he's got some of the coolest phrases to help us understand our, um, the issues around environmental justice. And he was talking about um, hurricane issues and how when it's time to, distrib you know, to distribute um, relief funds, et cetera, that the, there tends to be a trend in how um, we help people. And what he said, and if you quote me or whatever, you make sure you say Dr. Bullard said this, um, money follows money, money follows power, money follows white people. For far too long, Black, brown, and indigenous communities have been the sacrifice zones for wealthier and, frankly, whiter communities. In 1987, the important report, Toxic Waste and Race, was released and articulated that people of color and persons of low socioeconomic status are disproportionately impacted and are particularly concentrated in neighborhoods and communities with, greatest, with the greatest numbers of toxic facilities. Some 30 years later, the findings of toxic waste and race are still true. America is segregated, and so is pollution. Race and class still matter, and maps closely with pollution, unequal protection, and vulnerability. In addition to the location of toxic facilities, our communities are experiencing the negative impacts of old crippled infrastructure, energy insecurity, food insecurity, and rising housing costs that are worsened by gentrification in many of our cities. Sometimes, and this is just an antidote, sometimes community organization, organizations have to deal with the fact that when we push back and say we want more green spaces, when we say we, you know, we want to clean up the Hudson River like they did in, in, in Harlem, or we want to empower our communities to be uh, stronger places to raise our children so we can address air quality, et cetera, the moment we stand up and advocate and things actually do progress, we then put ourselves at jeopardy of gentrification. Because now all of a sudden, our neighborhoods that were a horrible place to be and just filled with blight, but due to our 
um, advocacy are now wonderful places to come to and everybody wants to start running and there's always this anecdote about you know a community is about to change if you see people walking around with their dogs all of a sudden. But the reality is, I'm so serious, like where I live in DC, like I get off the train and it's a lot wider than it's been. And then my immediate concern is what does that mean for the rent costs here? What does that mean for the people who've lived here for generations, who are working class people who do amazing things to keep their families together? And because of redlining and segregation, they've been forced to live where they live, but we're also adjacent to these facilities that are polluting us at the same time. But now all of a sudden, because developers feel that this is a viable community, we're in a tight spot to stay where we are or to be forced further away from communities that we've we've invested generations in. So this is the struggle that we continually face. We want greener spaces, but at what cost? So think about all of those kinds of things. When you're designing these plans, how will they impact the communities? Who is at the table? Who's allowing, who's, who's discussing these plans? And, and I'll keep, oh man, just recently a bill was introduced at the federal level and it was about you know solar and um, about how it will impact low-income communities and there's such a strong environmental justice need for solar and we totally agree. I was looking at the people who uh, were in influential in the creation of the bill and there were no environmental justice organizations at the table. So even when you're well-meaning and everything might look right on paper, why aren't we in the rooms discussing this with you? We have not only years of experience, we have our own environmental um, knowledge and understanding of our communities. We deserve to be at the table to discuss these things because our lives are at stake just as much as your lives are at stake. So when we say we're designing a Green New Deal, I ask what's that gonna look like? So here's some other information. 31% of US households um, have trouble paying energy bills. And this is like from ACEEE. And what they said, what there's, you know, there's an overwhelming uh, link between low-income households and their ability to pay bills. So when we think about transitioning from what we currently have to solar and renewables, et cetera, how do we also address energy insecurity for communities? Now in this room, I am sure, you know, we've got some really educated folks, some of the nation's brightest scholars, activists, and lawyers. I went to law school. And through experience, we can all agree that words matter. When drafting these policies and legislation, what will be included? What will be excluded? Who will be included? Who will be excluded? Will it emphasize clean energy? Which depending on who you ask, could be inclusive of nuclear, even carbon sequestration. I mean, some people even want to say that's clean coal, right? Will the Green New Deal emphasize market-based solutions? Because when has the market really taken care of people? Or will this Green New Deal emphasize solar, wind, energy efficiency, and maximize community-led solutions already in existence? So at WEACT, we have this really robust uh, solar training program called Solar Uptown Now. Google it, please. Um, it's already... Uh, 
trained 90 members of the Harlem community, providing 900 residents at 11 buildings access to solar energy, but also having you know this new opportunity to be a part of the um, the solar uh, energy sector, which we already know is incredibly. Um, underverse, so that this is our attempt to not only address the the diversity issue there, but also make sure that our our residents in Harlem can benefit from a fossil fuel energy source. Will the Green New Deal? Uh, fund workforce development programs. Um, there's some really great workforce development programs that we've seen over the years that are really underfunded. Environmental justice organizations like the Green Door Initiative in, in, in Michigan, led by Donnell Wilkins, and deep in the Deep South Center for Environmental Justice, led by Beverly Wright, they've benefited from the National Institute of Environmental Health and Services Work Training Program. That program only gets $3.5 million of federal dollars, but the return on that has been a hundred million and again a hundred million like if you give people skills good paying jobs in underserved communities not only will that lift up that that community and that family out of poverty but we can also use those folks to address you know remediating brownfields and 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 and, and revive these communities through the investments that are necessary but will a Green New Deal, will we make sure that that's what it's going to include? And so this program alone, with a history in more than 30 communities in 20 states nationwide, is a really successful model that we really hope will be, um, become you know, duplicated in many different areas. So if we agree that the needs of communities of color must be made a priority, then we must demand that the Green New Deal mobilize government funding at the federal, state, and local level towards public, publicly owned renewable energy, energy efficiency, transit, and agriculture projects that, is, that achieve pollution-free, net zero greenhouse gas emissions. The work should be administered by the public sector and guarantee good paying jobs. The benefits should accrue equitably to members of vulnerable communities and communities of color who have disproportionately been <laughs> impacted by legacy pollutions and it must consider all communities' health and ensure prosperity through transformative economic investments. But if your Green New Deal does not look like that, then don't talk to me. <laughs> But if it does, and you are genuinely willing to do the meaningful engagement with environmental justice communities and, environment and, and grassroots organizations that have been here for decades, then we've got something to talk about. My name is Kareen Taylor with We Act for Environmental Justice. Thank you very much. And finally, you'll hear from Rihanna Gunn Wright. There's something happening back there that y'all can't see. Um, so, um, it's really an honor to be here today, and clearly, y'all see that I have no sense. So, um, so this is going to be that kind of day, and I wanted to just ask: Your girl has had a long week. So can we just talk? Like, I just want to talk to you all. I cannot promise to be 
the best version of myself, but I will try. Um, so you saw me essentially losing my mind in the last half of Corrine's remarks, and that's because um, so much of what she said resonates, um, because I think what she laid out is what the Green New Deal needs to be, what it has to be, and clearly if she asks those questions, what we have not convince people that it actually truly is. So I think we have to just face that reality, which is that uh, things move at the speed of trust. And um, so much of the Green New Deal, the nuts and bolts of it, live in that fleshy emotional space, right? The Green New Deal, I think, in ways that we don't like to talk about, just in general, uh, I think, particularly in policy, what we do is intellectualize a lot of things that are deeply human and emotional. Uh, which means, and I don't know why exactly do that, I think there's a lots of reasons, but the fact is that things move and don't move both because of power, like David said, and uh, power in a ruthless way, uh, and also understanding that it also happens because of emotions around those power and around that power, fear of losing power, desire to gain power, uh, and just like Corrine said, it, things move or don't move based on on whether or not you can get people on board, and ultimately that has a lot to do with trust, right? It depends a lot on can you show up in spaces. Uh, and be who you said you were gonna be when you said you were gonna be that person. And I think um, the Green New Deal policy-wise has to face all of that. Because when we're talking about climate change as much as um, I love Leah's graphs <laughs> and I love talking about, you know, what do building standards have to look like and all of these things. The fact is when we're having conversations about climate change, we are having really emotional conversations with people. We are talking to people who are often afraid. We are talking to people who um, might not have a whole lot of hope in what we have now or our ability to build anything better. We are talking about people's deep feelings, their fears about losing their homes, right? The places that made them no longer existing. We're talking about people's feelings about whether or not I should have a kid. Can I bring a child into this kind of world and give them the life that they deserve, right? All of this is so much about our really fleshy, terrified insides. And I think it's important to start there because the fact is if we act like none of that exists, even if we have all of the political operatives and even if we have all of the best policy, things aren't gonna move because we are not talking to people where they are and we are not addressing them where they need to be addressed. So, um, So I think we have to start um, there. And so I was asked to talk about sort of the process for how you design a Green New Deal because by some accident of fate and extreme lack of foresight on my part, I got involved in this. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> 
swept up. Yeah, my reputation is now is like, do you have a big idea? Maybe it can't happen, call Rihanna. She'll try to help you and I'm always dumb enough to be like, yeah, yeah, sounds great. Um, so, and so I was asked to talk about this process because I'm one of the people tasked with developing a process to design a Green New Deal. And I talk a lot about process because, can we, are there any children under 18? No, because it fucking matters. Um, and it matters a lot because no one thinks of ideas in isolation and particularly in policy. Policy is, we make it sound really fancy, but essentially it's two things. It's collective problem solving. Right, that's all it is. It is we have a problem that has now surpassed the ability for any one of us to deal with it alone. Now we have to create policies to deal with it. And then the second thing that it is beyond that um, is, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Um, so the second thing that it is beyond that is ideas made real, right, which means that uh, unfortunately, I don't work in the academy and I love academia because it allows ideas to be this thing that's sort of removed and on high and you can deal with them and policy is ideas made real. It is when you have to take those things into the very imperfect world of what we have and try to make them real and there's no way to get out of that mess except through it. Uh, and so that the process with which we design the Green New Deal matters a lot because it shapes the solutions that we come up with, right? Because policy is about power. It is how you distribute power and it is how you distribute pain. That is fundamentally what it is. If I pay you $15, I have decided or at least help decide how much power you have, especially in the US right now where it is entirely a market economy often. There, everything from your basic necessities, food, water, energy, you pay for that, to things that we, now there are lots of movement to say that they shouldn't be on the market, universal childcare, healthcare, but basically, fundamentally, in the US you have to pay for the things that you need. So if I give you $15, which means now you have, and you were making 750, how much more power do you have to participate in this economy? How many more markets did you just show up in as a consumer, right? And when you fall out of markets, let's be honest in the US, when you fall out of a market, you do not exist anymore until we catch you in a public program and the space between when you fall and that public program can be really, really vast, right? And so all of that matters. And so if we are attempting to design a Green New Deal that both does all of these public works, brings us um, to net zero emissions and also like the resolution says, addresses systemic inequality, then the process through which I can come up with solutions matters. And I say that partially because, and for that reason, we designed a pretty open process, right? That's part of the reason the Green New Deal came out without defined policy, right? It was because we wanted to have an open-ended process where it sort of encourages collaboration because the fact is, 
a lot of the things that Corrine was talking about, when she said we go out and we get data so that you all will listen, that is true because a lot of these experiences don't live in data because we don't collect data on them, right? Like we don't truly understand deeply, even I engaged in this work don't truly understand deeply what is happening in a frontline community in Houston because what I have is no data, no formal data. And it's exacerbated by the fact that because these places often, like Kareen said, have crippled infrastructure, all these things, you are dealing with multiplicative effects. And the fact is those are really important to study and it makes it even more crucial that you can be in conversation with folks because it's not a nice to have, it is foundational. If, I'm, if we are going to design a Green New Deal that can do all of that, you have to know all of that. And since there is no data, you have to go out and talk to people to figure it out. And so we designed a process um, like that. So at New Consensus, our process has a few things. It has, um, a, like it has about four inputs for people with various desires to get involved, uh, to get involved um, and, and to do that, that work for us um, or with us, not for us, sorry. You also can't be extractive. Uh, so that's also really important. Uh, and so in some ways, this has been really, really successful. This gathering is, is an example of it being successful. Because it was out there, because it's open, people are organizing themselves, right? They are coming up with solutions. Um, this is part of a larger sort of network of design and architecture professionals who, when the Green New Deal came down, decided they wanted to be part of it. They're organizing themselves. There's communities in the Gulf South organizing to figure out what will be a Green New Deal. All of this is really awesome, and it's really, really um, great. Uh, and But it, I'll talk about sort of the the part of it that's difficult in a minute, but that sort of energy is exactly what we need. It's creating conversations that are unearthing a lot of things that we need to know in order to write good policy. And then the other thing that has worked, um, where I think like the Green New Deal has made a bit of a sort of innovation, was recognizing that there is inside outside organizing, right? Where you try to move people on the inside, right? You get in, you have political operatives, you're doing that thing, which we're doing, and then you have the outside where you're trying to build a mass movement, but there is a deep gray space of the people who talk to the people on the inside. So part of the Green New Deal was recognizing that we have to do inside and outside, but we also have to organize the advisors, the think tanks, the academics, because the fact is that particularly in our government, you are dealing with a lot of high power, low information actors. <laughs> Just is what it is, and it's not always their fault. These things are built these ways. So most congressional offices, for instance, will have small legislative staffs. They'll cover large bodies of work. They might be an expert in one or two, which means they lean heavily on advisors to know which way to go to tell them what's the appropriate state of play, to tell them what's going to get them laughed out of a room, what's not. And often we leave those folks to their own devices or act like they don't exist. So if we are going to be powerful, you have to advise the advisors. And I think we have, have done a pretty good job of that. 
Now, what is not working and what we have had difficulty in is I think we underestimated how much, one, people would be excited, and two, how much work it actually takes to take all of this information that we are learning, all the ways that people are organizing themselves, all the things that they are doing, and take it in and turn it into something. That is a body of work all unto itself. And to do it in a way that is respectful of the people who are giving it and the ways in which they have been in the space before we have, the ways that they have often spent their lives doing this work and we have not, and how you interact to bring those ideas and to bring people sometimes with long-standing real animosity together because this stuff isn't surface, like we said. So if I'm, it's easy to say, you know, I'm going to bring uh, communities with government officials, with businesses, and we're going to all talk. And then you realize that this community was poisoned by that company that you want to invite, and it was allowed by that public official who wants to show up. And y'all all got to work together, or we all going to die. Um, <laughs> And, and that's really actually quite a big lift. And so there is an, a component of this even in the policy space, which again, like I said, I think we tend to stay away from the really emotional stuff, but that means that there is a part of the policy work that is just literally relational, building relationships, teaching people that they can trust you, showing yourself to be trustworthy. Right, because the other thing about the Green New Deal, and I think about policy in general, but what we're particularly trying to do in the Green New Deal is that policy doesn't just create solutions. Policy creates ground for organizing. Policy creates grounds for community, right? Policy is also a signaling device to say, I see what you are going through deeply and I will respond deeply because that is how much I fucking care about you. And that is what we have to do, and that is incredibly difficult to do. Um, but that is not to say that it should not be done, because if it is not done, we will not be here. Because the thing is, like when Leah was talking and she like took the nuclear part out of that, that's a real, conversation, when she was talking about negative emissions, those are, we are talking about really sticky things that are, again, not just about the technology themselves, but about the emotions and about the societal power and access to power that is attached to them and what that technology is going to do or not do. And so that means that also in order for this to pass, we have to have a coalition that can cohere even amongst disagreement because everyone has to recognize that no one will get 100% of what they want, but we need to somehow get 90% of what we all need. And so we, that sort of um, negotiation is really difficult, but it has to happen, because if a coalition is not strong enough to make it through a floor fight, it ain't the coalition we need, right? Um, so, um, so I think, and then I think the other thing that we underestimated that's been tough is the role of just literally the policy element of the public narrative. So a lot of what we have done up till now, I think on the policy front, particularly at New Consensus, is be blockers, right? Is to be blockers, to allow this idea to be taken seriously in enough rooms 
that it can survive, that the coalition that needs to be built can be built. Because the fact is that a lot of folks will come, listen to Kareem, go to Sunrise events, clap, be really excited, this is the best thing ever, you're so right, go back into a room and be like, all we can do is a carbon tax, honey. <laughs> right? And so, again, if you are not moving that room, you are not doing your whole job. And so I think we have been good at getting in those rooms, explaining where the Green New Deal is coming from, explaining the theoretical backing, showing that we understand the economics implications of what we are saying, and literally just creating space for the people who are doing the other parts, and incredibly important parts, particularly in an election season, the really important parts of organizing so that they can do their work and be taken seriously and not just be leading a movement that's going to end up in a bunch of closed doors with a lot of people nodding to them in public and poo-pooing them in private. And the fact is that I might be a 29-year-old black woman, but I am a Rhodes Scholar. And Oh, thank you. You haven't met all of them. You might not want to clap. Uh, so, I mean, they're, they're, they're mostly good. We're mostly fine. Um, but, um, but that means that, like, that I can do that in ways that other people can't do that. Joe Stiglitz, Joseph Stiglitz can go and leverage that sort of reputation in ways that, and be heard in those rooms in ways that some of the folks that we work with will not, and that's not because they're not good enough, it's because people need to be made ready for what they have to bring and to be able to hear that. And so what's happening in the next uh, six months is that I think we have played that blocking position for a long time. And I think the last six months have taught us a lot about what it's actually gonna take to not only figure out the, the nuts and bolts of this, but put together, again, a policy infrastructure that can support the work and push forward the work that needs to be done. So I think a lot of the next six months is looking at what we have, what we built, seeing what infrastructure is needed and actually creating a policy ecosystem to support that. Because the fact is the right does not have one think tank. They got a lot. <laughs> and they got, and you only think of the ones you know about. <laughs> There's a lot of secrets. Um, and so that means that if we're gonna push something through as robust, we need a similar sort of enveloping infrastructure that can support that. And then I think the work is just, of the next six months, is also moving from that blocking position to providing policy that can be used, right? Because policy is also a weapon. When you give some people something to organize around, they will. And I think we're moving into that space where we, where people are asking more and more, what can we concretely organize around? And we need to provide that. Uh, and I think the last thing is pretty simple. Like um, David said, the the sort of helplessness we have about our government, and like the first panel illustrated, isn't necessarily based right, and true limitations of government. We have seen what we can do when the state actually mobilizes on the part of people. Uh, and so a lot of what we are trying to do, even with the policy and making, and also educating people more about these things and making it more popular, providing weapons, is also reminding a lot of people who have been told that they have no power that they do, in fact, have power. 
a beaten dog still has teeth, and when that thing remembers, it's gonna fucking bite you. Uh, and that's what we're, a lot of what we're trying to do is remember that we have teeth, right? These things were built up, but just like they were built in design, you can redesign them, you can rebuild them. And so a lot of our work going forward is reminding people of that, but also continuing to build relationships of trust uh, and true, true learning. Uh, with folks like Kareen, folks in EJ communities, folks in labor, folks in all sorts of communities, so that we are creating the best policy that can be implemented. We're thinking about service design, and we're building a coalition that can move to the floor with a vision, a policy vision that we support, and ultimately um, create a process that allows us to both think expansively enough about who should be involved, actually get them at the table, actually renegotiating uh, relationships of power um, and moving us to a place where we can actually win. Now you'll hear a panel conversation moderated by Allison Mossiter and Ellen Nisus. Um, I have a million questions written down, but I guess I'm going to just pick one. Okay. <laughs> um, so in the previous session, Nancy Levinson talked about how the original New Deal embraced bold experimentation and a series of improvisations. But there will, in addition to there being some flexibility possibly built into a policy like this, there will also be some specifics. And Rihanna mentioned how policy is where ideas are made real. So for each of you, what is something specifically that is a non-negotiable non essential of a Green New Deal? What is something that you absolutely need to see written into a Green New Deal? I can go first. So for me, it's workforce development. Uh, we talk a lot about how do you pay for the Green New Deal, but you pay for things in terms of real resources and money. Uh, and right now we're only talking about financing. Uh, we're not talking about how do you actually have enough workers. And so workforce development is crucial. The other reason that workforce development is crucial uh, is, um, and I'm a fan of a jobs guarantee, you know, I'll put that out there. I ain't gonna lie about it. Um, but like Kareen said, the, I think the other reason that workforce development is so important is because I think workforce development is best when it's localized. And the people who know how to do it well are groups like We Act, are groups like uh, Emerald City Collaboratives. There are people out there who are already doing this work. And so it's a place where it's actually fundamentally crucial and also a real big opportunity to invest in the local infrastructure that we need uh, to actually have diverse, well-paid uh, workforces. Uh, I'd just say that the, the whole um, beauty of the Green New Deal concept is it's just something that the climate movement has been waiting on forever, which is just a way to wrap up the whole kit and caboodle. It's a very large kit and caboodle, so there's lots of things that, that need to be, uh, that absolutely need to be uh, included. The one, I think the one thing I would say is, I worry a little bit about some of the rhetoric I see where, where activists say, we have the technology we need, all we need is political will to put them in place. I understand what motivates that, but we don't actually know how to decarbonize a lot of sectors of the economy, just on a practical level, like industry and steel and concrete, heavy shipping, on a very sort of just pedestrian level, we need a lot of uh, applied R&D specifically focused on those resistant sectors. And I think um, we should view that as an opportunity also to, to just amp up 
the amount of money that the U.S. spends on research and, and, and model the way we do research better, maybe like on Germany, where they have these sort of uh, they have these sort of localized and, and uh, area focused practical R and D centers that spin out a lot of technologies. Just get a lot better about getting smarter and doing smart R and D, and not fall for this sort of. R&D versus implementation or R&D versus deployment argument like, of course, we need to learn more as fast as we can. I would say... That was for you, Jesse. <laughs> um, in addition... Oh, we're clapping. Um, in addition to uh, workforce development, which was going to be my first uh, jump, uh, <laughs> I think... <laughs> I think we have to be uh, honest about the fact that if we're only focusing on carbon, we're totally ignoring just legacies of pollution and a lot of other um, poison and um, issues that communities of color are experiencing every day. So we need to look at the co-benefits. We need to look at cumulative impacts um, for communities and that have, like, like all the research has shown that we hope you all look into, um, that we, we, we have, we're the, the, the the, pretty much the, the ground zero for a lot of our country's toxic waste facilities and um, being exposed to so many other um, chemicals, et cetera, because of you know race and placement. And I think until we address all of those things to only focus on carbon emissions, I think it's incredibly important, but it's, it's not the full side of the issue, especially as it relates to environmental justice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I want decarbonization. I want it very badly. Uh, I want fossil fuels to stay in the ground. And uh, in order for that to happen, the Green New Deal has to have policy in place to deploy, to innovate, to protect communities. Um, and implementation is my first love, David. Um, and you know, that means that the policy has to stay in place long enough that we decarbonize. You know, we're facing an election in Canada right now where the very small amount of uh, climate action in that country could be reversed depending on who is elected. And you see that all the time. In Australia, they reverse their carbon price. So the benefit of marrying social policy and protecting communities with a good <coughs> deal is that it'll be harder to roll back. And we're living through the Trump administration. We understand the consequences of rollbacks. And there is no extra time in the schedule. <laughs> you saw my graphs. We <laughs> roll things back. So I want decarbonization on the timelines necessary. If implementation is everything, um, oh, yeah. do we need new institutions or we, do we just need to move money to institutions we already have? This is the question I was born for. Um, so, uh, so I come from a background in social policy. So in social policy, we talk about implementation, but a lot of times we talk about service delivery because mm -hmm. you're talking about delivering services. Uh, and it's super crucial. A lot of, so people love to talk about, like Leah said, durability only happens through bipartisanship. That is one way. The other way is just being really popular. Yes. And people understanding how a policy impacts their life and mm -hmm. wanting, mm -hmm. and wanting, getting attached to it, building sort of their life around, like if social security went away, everyone here would be panicking. Well, maybe they look like there might be some rich people in here so maybe. Um, and young people but i'm scared uh and and so but social security has been the people have tried to roll it back forever you know why it doesn't roll back because people like it uh and so the other way that you build 
support for policies is also making them work, like David said. And, and that comes down to even like, how easy is it to get the grant? What does the application process look like? Mm -hmm. Where are the centers set up, right? Is it a one-stop shop? How much paperwork do I have to keep going? Is it a grant or a loan, mm -hmm. which has huge mm -hmm. effects on uptake, right? Um, I think I ain't run a study on it. Uh, so, so we have to be thinking about all of that. Some of that will take new institutions, right? Particularly because all of what we're talking about is gonna require a lot of collaboration amongst agencies. And right now there's really no like no organizational uh, structure in the government that makes that easy, particularly the federal government. So you might be talking about new institutions to oversee. You might be talking about um, new, and it's also like institutions can be in existing agencies. You can just have new programs. You might need some new institutions. And I actually think what's really interesting about the Green New Deal is that I think, and climate in general, is I think it's forcing us to recognize and really take seriously the faults in our institutions because the fact remains that we are facing down possible like extinction and we are arguing about the filibuster, <laughs> which it doesn't make any sense to me, right? Because the fact that a man like Mitch McConnell can be become powerful enough to essentially doom us into <laughs> extinction, <laughs> means that something in your system is broke. You know, so I think, and the funny thing is I think it was only, sorry. Um, I think it's only the end of the world that would get us to actually talk about should you abolish the Senate or the <laughs> college. But I think it is making us really think about what it will. <laughs> do it again. I think, uh, I think it's just making us think about that because the same institutions that we need to have a Green New Deal are the same institutions we need to have a 21st century functional democracy that's multiracial. Word. Uh, I, I want to throw in one slightly idiosyncratic answer. Back in the 90s, the Congress used to have an in-house uh, uh, research service. I forget. Can somebody tell CRS? me what that is? CRS. Yeah, that CRS. Is, Newt, and Newt Gingrich oh, yes. killed it. Uh, as I said, very deliberately and with foresight, knowing exactly what the, what, the, what the results would be, which is, as Rihanna was saying, Congress people depend entirely now on lobbyists to know anything about anything. So, so restoring that, restoring, um, and this is a frequently an unpopular suggestion, but raising congressional pay, making mm -hmm. uh, uh, the, the congressional staffers mm -hmm. pay, pay better, just like restoring the ability of Congress to be intelligent instead of just to be the arm of the powerful. Right, and I would say to piggyback on that, that's been a very big challenge for environmental justice organizations with every um, single congressional year, you know, staff come in and out, and we literally have to read yes. them <laughs> yeah. what environmental justice yeah. is, and then even then, we have to then point out who 
what organizations are in their own district that do that work. And so every, you know, every two, it's this process, it's, it's a, it becomes almost not a waste of our time, but a very unfortunate use of our time. And that would be a really, you know, a really smart way to, you know, make those folks become more institutionalized to stay in the staff so that they can have a wealth of knowledge because it would really help us then move beyond the place of just saying, this is who we are and this is what we do right. to how do we move the needle? How do we really, you know, do really good policy for the country? So if we did see those kinds of things happen with staff, it really would have a big difference. Yeah, I've done research that shows exactly the argument that David is talking about with Alex Hurdle Fernandez and Madeleine Mildenberger. We show that basically Congress is entirely dependent on moneyed interests, um, and it explains. So, for example, if you ask chiefs of staff and legislative directors, do you think people want climate action? We can estimate that at the district level now. And they'll say, no, they don't. And then we look at who they're getting money from, and the more they get money from the American Petroleum Institute, the more they meet with them, the worse they are at guessing the majority support <laughs> for climate action. Weird how so, that works. I know, it's super weird. Um, Crazy. Very controversial finding in political science, though, funny enough. Mm -hmm. um, so, who knew? Interest groups matter. I'm getting famous for saying that. The rest of the world already knows, but not my discipline. Um, <laughs> oh. um, Drag them. Anyway. <laughs> So, but the, in the yeah, plans, burn. let's go back to my favorite things, the plans. In the plans, Inslee, for example, came up with really cool ideas like um, a climate conservation corps. He launched that with Data for Progress, very cool idea. Um, talked about a climate czar, for example. So, I mean, I think we have to think about how do we mainstream this throughout the federal government. And there was really good ideas. I think Nancy this morning did an excellent job sort of talking about the institutions built up in the New Deal and certainly inspired me to learn more about those things. Um, because we probably will need new agencies. If we're going to take $16 trillion, as for example, Bernie Sanders suggests, wow, it's a lot of money. How are we gonna get that out the door? What are the agencies gonna look like? You know, that's really important stuff to think about, and we probably need new things. But I will say, we could also fund ARPA-E. This is one of my favorite things to go on about. ARPA-E is an excellent agency that does really interesting innovation. It's never been funded to its full potential. At the high water mark, it's $400 million a year. That's it. So um, they could be funded better. So sometimes we have agencies that could be funded better, and then other times maybe we need to create new institutions. And I will say that I think also the nuts and bolts of it are figuring out what are the small things uh, that can make this possible. So like Newt Gingrich with CRS, CRS still exists, but what yes. he did was prevent CRS from making any recommendations about mm -hmm. anything. Mm -hmm. So now all of the CRS uh, papers have to be objective, which means they say nothing. And even if, I mean, they're useful, but even if there's like definite no or definite yes, you have to look through the footnotes if they're gonna do it. Uh, and similarly with ARPA-E, right, ARPA-E is great, but ARPA-E is only funds to the point of demonstration, which means that the tech, once it shows that it works, there's no more support. So they have still a valley to face when they want to get commercialized. DARPA has, because it's defense, like they're often the first buyers, and so it makes it easier. So that's also like a small thing with ARPA-E is like, what if you just allowed them to also fund commercialization? So what I'm also interested in the nuts and bolts is thinking about what are the things that we can 
push through that will make the rest of this easier. Mm -hmm. Because as we're big, building big things, it doesn't mean that you can't be laying the groundwork uh, by looking at which things that you need to create the leverage or the institutions and working on those now. And to build on what Rihanna's saying, right, there's a procurement link in yeah, the military yeah. Yeah. that doesn't exist. Right. And, but if you had $16 trillion, you, you would be have. buying a lot of stuff. Exactly. So, um, you know, the government could be a purchaser and bring down the cost through economies yeah. of scale. And I think that the kind of benefits, well, except for when the military contractors spend money, you know, badly. Um, but other times, you know, they can get things potentially, you know, through that valley of death and into commercialization. Totally. And there's all these we still like procurement is a huge tool mm -hmm. that we still have like underdeveloped we don't even know like what strings you can and cannot do like the digging that you have to do to figure out how to actually do procurement is really tough even from within the government so even a simple thing beforehand about procurement and what you can say mm -hmm. once you have the 16 trillion dollars it makes it a lot easier to, to <laughs> use it the way you want turns out everything's easier with 16 trillion dollars <laughs> I think, I think we, you, you gave us all a lot of uh, sense of hope because you're worrying about the details and you have a lot of approaches, except for maybe David. He didn't make me that hopeful. Um, <laughs> but I just worry. I still worry. About the details. I mean, last night you did say that uh, conservatives were talking about the Green New Deal three times as often as, as liberal media were. And who was going to train up liberals? Um, can you give us some work to do? If we know that you're worrying about some of these details and, and, and working hard on them, what could we do to help over the next six months? Elect Democrats? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, oh, well, my, my point that I was making is, and this is one of the structural things that I, that, I, that I meant to mention that I forgot to mention, but one of the structures that the right has been working on for the last <laughs> for 30, 40 years is a parallel communication machine, a parallel media machine, think tank machine, a whole Eat parallel set of, uh, of institutions designed explicitly along partisan lines, explicitly to re reinforce partisan messages. And so when the, something like the Green New Deal comes up, they recognize it as a threat immediately. They recognize its power and its potential and go to work immediately in a coordinated way across that whole machine of defining the Green New Deal for their listeners and watchers. And there is nothing on the left commensurate with that. You have, you have CNN both sides panels. You have you know, small, small uh, online media, but you just have nothing like the, the message coordination. And, and part of that is structural. Part of that is just inherent to the left. You're always going to have more homogeneity on the right. But, but like, I hear so often, like, why don't Dems talk about this? Or why don't they talk this way or that way? And they can talk that way until they're blue in the face. If no one tells the public they're doing it, right? If there's no conveyance machine to their voters, then it's just they end up defined by the other side. And so to most of the public, the Green New Deals have been defined by the right. And AOC has been defined by the right. They, they, Fox mentioned her three times as much as, as the other networks combined as well. They recognize her as a threat as well. So, so this, this, this um, uh, communication asymmetry is sort of like the, the number one shaping fact of our politics and it just gets ignored on the left, I feel like far too often. So, so I don't even know what the answer to, to, to the question is, but, but uh, I feel like all the messages in the world won't help you if you don't have the machine to carry the messages to the people. 
I think there's one hopeful development in the environmental movement, which is the Keep It in the Ground campaign has been pretty darn successful. And um, we have uh, 177 natural gas plants as a low estimate being proposed right now. Uh, this is the Energy and Policy Institute, one of my favorite very tiny under-resourced think tanks, um, but totally punches above its weight, is you know, tracking all that stuff. And I think you know, those 177 plants are in people's communities. They're often in communities of color, but we need to be organizing in our own backyards to be stopping those things from ever being built. Because if you look at this amazing research um, by Steve Davis and colleagues, it shows that we cannot build a single new piece of fossil fuel infrastructure and meet a 1.5 degree Celsius warming target. So so maybe we can't have a Green New Deal tomorrow, but we can stop a lot of plants. And I think that that is what we should be doing right now. Yeah, and just, yeah, and let me add, there's, you often hear that, like, climate is complicated, policy is complicated, I can't follow all the details, blah, blah, blah. But, but we have so thoroughly screwed ourselves that we have screwed ourselves into a position of clarity, right? If it emits <laughs> fossil, if it emits greenhouse gases, you can't do it, right? So everybody can understand that. So if it's a fossil fuel plant, no. If it's a pipeline, no, right? If it's a policy that encourages more fossil fuels, no. It's, a yes, it's, it's, it's very clear now, <laughs> the road forward. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of hopeful. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, I think Billy's coming on stage now. Ooh. Thank you. Bye. I would love to let this go on for like the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> uh, give it up for them one more time, y'all.